When I joined the ranks of the anti-trafficking movement in 09, I very soon realized that no one had anything figured out. And there were, it was such an early time in the movement. As I studied the nature of movements, I discovered that most of them run in a 30-year cycle. And the first 10 years are typically filled with sensationalized marketing and people really don't know how to help. It's because it's a new idea and many times it's not a new idea, it's just new labels applied to something that's been going on for a very long time. So think about domestic violence. It's not like domestic violence was new, it was like we put a new word to it. And trafficking is very much the same way. People have being, been selling themselves and being sold like since the dawn of time. My, use, my pimp used to say, you know, hoeing is the first profession. It, and that's probably really true. So when I joined the ranks of the anti-trafficking movement, I wish I would have had this quote from Mother Teresa um, in those moments because it would have answered a lot of questions. What Mother Teresa said was, I was once asked why I don't participate in anti-war demonstrations. I said that I'll never do it. But as soon as you have a pro-peace rally, I'll be there. That was such a profound statement to me because the anti of any type of movement is automatically contradictory to itself. And it creates this war that is waged and it simply causes more problems. I also realized that so many people were just trying to figure things out. Everybody was, it was like all of society. When I say everybody, it's like the predominant thought in society was that trafficking was something that wasn't new, but we were just now starting to talk about it. And as I went to like all these different board meetings and small groups, because I was trying to learn what it was about just as much as anyone else. Just because I survived something doesn't make me an expert of anything more than my own story. And yet, because of the trauma, my story was all kinds of locked up. And like, it takes a while to be able to really unpack the nuances. Because you start with the trauma because that's where the biggest pain is. But then as you go through your healing journey, you start to see the nuances and the little things that drove you to where you are. The first thing I noticed within the anti-trafficking movement was how crazy the marketing was. It wasn't accurate to what I experienced or anyone who I knew experienced. Like I, I had not seen children chained up in cages. I had not seen like anyone who even appeared to be forced. And yet, according to the current terms, many of us were actually trafficked. And that's one of the nuances is that while I was trafficked, I was probably looking better than I ever have in my entire life. And it's because I was the product. And if the product isn't like completely decked out, it just won't sell for as much. 
And so when I was 17, 18 years old and being trafficked, I was wearing $3,000 custom suits. I I was wearing $150 track suits. It, like it was the 90s. We wore track suits. Yeah, I wouldn't think of putting on a pair of jean shorts that cost less than 50 bucks. I only had the best salon quality shampoo and conditioner. My nails were always done. I had jewelry. It's because when you look like that, you attract more money. And so why wouldn't a pimp invest in the product? It doesn't mean I wasn't forced or brainwashed or tricked or like life threats are a pretty big deal. It doesn't mean that didn't happen. I just looked nothing like the marketing. I looked nothing like what was represented. Now, over the years, I did learn that and have met many survivors who were locked in cages who were bred for the purpose of being sold. But I have to say that those experiences are the far minority compared to an experience where you look more normal. You look like a product because really it's a hustle and you can't tell the difference between someone who is being forced to be there or someone who just wants to be there. Or someone who is providing for their children or an ill family member. You can't tell by looking the nuances and the difficulty and the experiences that someone has been through. Because in the industry, the person themselves is the product. And not many people want to buy a dirty, chained up person. That's just a small minority. One of the other things I realized is that, again, in early 09, there were hardly any quote-unquote dedicated beds for trafficking survivors anywhere in the country. At the time, it was something like 20 beds nationwide. And there wasn't any in the city that I lived in, Portland, Oregon. And it was like, why are there so few resources and as I listen to people complain and complain, there's no resources, there's no resources, like we don't have any beds. And I would go to these board meetings where they were putting together budgets and trying to figure out wraparound services. And it was so completely baffling to me. And this is where we do get into business because it didn't make sense. It's like, okay, there's no beds. And yet I know, and then they knew, that there were trafficking survivors everywhere. And yet there's no resources. So where have they been getting help this whole time? Who has been serving them? And so that took me down one rabbit trail. But then as I was watching these programs be developed, so like a residential care program, I was like, the, the pricing of this is so crazy. Because most bids were coming in at about $150,000 per year per bed in order to serve a trafficking survivor. And yet when you go to like a homeless shelter model, it's typically between ten dollars and $12,000 a year. 
And I would sit there and listen to all of these like people in suits and uh, like amazing, amazing people with amazing hearts wanting to do awesome things, but so pulled by their emotions that they're willing to spend $150,000 per person compared to the 10 to 12,000 that it takes for homelessness resources. And I, I just couldn't help but say it. I couldn't keep bite my tongue anymore. I'm like, why on earth would any investor want to help one person per, you know, if I'm going to donate 150,000, why would I donate to help one person compared to giving it to a shelter where I could help 15 people? Like, it just doesn't make financial sense. Why are the services so high? Why, why are we paying so much per bed? Like, what makes trafficking so much worse that they need 15 times the resources in order to be rehabilitated, whatever the fuck that means, and then they're already being served somewhere but we don't know where they're being served. And I would leave these meetings just more confused and more frustrated than when I started because it was like, why, why are we doing this? Like I thought y'all were the business people and yet you're being led by your emotions. So I just continued to ask more and more questions. But you know what? I forgot to introduce myself. Hi y'all. My name's Jess Rich. Welcome to Whores Do It Best, a business podcast where for the first 12 episodes, I am sharing my journey of how I went from being a conservative evangelical Christian to now whatever the hell I am, um, the labelist, the kind, the logical. And I just tell my stories, speak my truths, because really I want to break away the stigma that surrounds the sex industry so we can get to the heart of where I learned business, and that is the sex industry. And I cannot wait to interview some of my most amazing friends who also got their start in business by learning by way of the streets, that night school, the school of hard knocks, whatever you want to call it, where we learned our entrepreneurial skills on the streets, in the industry, and now we're sharing them with the world. I want to see all the sexy brains because y'all, we're cute. And if you're watching on YouTube, welcome to my cozy bedroom. <laughs> I just jumped in wearing my bathrobe. I'm like, I'm just going to talk and we're going to see what happens. And if you are enjoying yourself, would you please just give me a review? It doesn't cost anything to help me boost my ratings and get this message out to a larger audience. Share it with your friends because when you go on these mind-bending journeys, it is so helpful to have someone to talk to because some of these epiphanies, like they rocked my world deeply. So thank you for coming on this journey. Let's jump right back in. So about a year into my speaking, I'm not sure when it was exactly, probably a year, year and a half in, I ended up being asked to speak at a training. And there was about 75, maybe 85 people there. 
And it was in a nice part of Portland. It was a beautiful training done in a church that was just gorgeous. And everyone was there for the purpose of being trained to volunteer at a local organization that was being, um, that was coming together to help serve trafficking survivors, specifically female minor trafficking survivors. So it's this whole group of volunteers who are being trained in like how to work with trafficking survivors. And I was there as a survivor and to speak, but then I was also very excited about the training because in my story, every counselor that I tried to go to, I never made it past the first session. They would end up crying, breaking down, not knowing how I survived, and then telling me something to the sort of, there's some things you just can't heal from. And that made me so angry in my early 20s with, uh, you know, like I was frustrated. I was angry and I knew that couldn't be the answer. And so I launched on this self-healing journey where I read the books, I took the curriculums, I studied everything I could get my hands on, and then I was helping people. I just started helping anyone who had trauma like mine. I was like, hey, I'm trying these tools. You want to try them too? It was really fascinating because whatever strength you have to endure and survive whatever experience that you lived through, that same strength exists within your healing. It doesn't go away just because you're safe now. You still have access to all of that courage, all of that strength, all of that bravery. But somehow we forget about that when we become safe in our life. Like like suddenly someone's going to bust through a wall and it's going to happen all over again. But the vast majority of the time, that is just not even true. If the experience in itself didn't kill you, the memory won't either unless you allow it to. And so I had already spent well over a decade trying to figure out how to human. As I'm sitting in this specific training program and I'm listening, it's just oozing, oozing with love and kindness. Like it was so thick and gross and quite frankly, fake feeling, because that's one of the perks you get as a survivor. Like all of us, our spidey senses, our radar senses are just like, woo, like that's what keeps you alive. It, it just felt gross and thick. And yet I was learning how to exist within this space of deep love. And so it felt good, but it was also like weird and bizarre to me. And as we would break apart into these small groups, we, I was listening to their stories and each person had like traumatic stories. Not, not normally, like obviously not as traumatic as mine, but we really shouldn't ever have a pissing contest over who has the best worst story, right? But 
it was like these seemingly minor stories to me because I was already very accustomed to working with severe complex trauma. These seemingly minor stories had eaten the people up so much in comparison to the severe complex trauma survivors. Like it would be one incident or one minor incident. It would just completely destroy them. And it was, there was all these walls and my brain could not wrap itself around the idea that almost everyone had trauma. And it seemed like to me, the more trauma they had, the more capacity they also had for joy. And it was almost easier to deal with this shit because there was so much of it, you just kind of have to laugh. But yet when someone isn't accustomed to having a lot of trauma, Seemingly, comparing, minor incidences can completely destroy someone. And it was this huge wake-up call that trauma in itself can be a strength because it shows us how powerful we are and that we, the trauma survivors, need to assist the rest of the world in understanding and healing from the lesser or more least less severe like how do you compare fucking trauma how do you do that but there's a huge difference between being gang raped regularly and your brother exposing your, himself to you when you were five we can't deny that there needs to be some kind of comparison but the comparison is really within ourselves We need to compare ourselves to who we were yesterday so we can be a better us today. And don't feel bad at all that you're fucked up because your brother exposed himself to you when you were five. Like, there's no shame in that. You should not want to have a more severe story so that you can fit in. Because, uh, honey, we need you. You don't have the issues that we've had. You don't have the problems that we've had. Your mindset, your family, the way things have been handled, we need that as an an example. It's important for us to see what less abuse looks like. So there is absolutely no need to have a pissing contest over who has the best worst story. Because I would much prefer and have worked very hard to change my generational cycles so that my children have dramatically less abuse than I had. Having less abuse is a really good thing. The problem is, is that we haven't been taught that that is abuse and then we haven't been given the tools on which to overcome them. Which is why I'm so freaking glad the mental health movement, which is a great movement, by the way, is absolutely on the rise because we need to be able to overcome those things so that we can tell our stories and speak our truths. It's our collective stories, honest stories, stories with authenticity that change the world because the feelings are the same. 
The feelings don't become new or different feelings when you're gang raped compared to being exposed to something. It's the same feeling. So as I'm speaking to this virtually all white audience of people with the most well-intentioned hearts, they're there because they want to serve, they want to volunteer, and they are willing to go through this incredibly long, rigorous training, background checks, which is ridiculous because I can't pass one. Um, and then they come to this like two-day training and they hear gut-wrenching story after gut-wrenching story. And there were actually a couple survivors there. And it was a really powerful time because we were being honored for what we experienced, but we were not being honored for what we knew. And that really bothered me because I was asking different questions than what they were asking. I was asking practical questions, like how can I possibly pass a background check? Out of this meeting also came some really fun friendships. I ended up making friends with a number of people who were clinicians. It seems to me that most people choose some sort of mental health um, clinical approach or social work because they've experienced hardship, pain, difficulty, something in their life, they are looking for healing and going to school to help other people is a great way to help themselves and help others. And the same thing was true within this room of amazing people who were coming to volunteer. They all had a heart for it, but a lot of it was because there was something that impacted them in their lives that caused them to be passionate about it. And so there was this huge cart before the horse thing where it's like, how on earth are y'all gonna like volunteer to help people when you can't even hear my story that I've been working on for a decade without busting down in tears? Because if I were in the life right now and I'm telling you my story and you're crying, I'm going to laugh at you. If you're not strong enough to hear my story that's been put together, how on earth are you going to hear someone who's in the throes of trauma without just completely losing your shit? Oh, but I digress. So I have these new friends that are all counselors and clinicians and it was really awesome because I was starting to understand more of the clinical pathway. And I have this weird obsession with books. I read a lot, a lot, a lot. And I just started reading all of the books that they had read and collecting DSMs. And we would go back and forth and I was studying really like what diagnoses are. It was fascinating getting to know my new friends because I soon figured out that when someone comes into your office, you really can't tell the difference between what is a chemical imbalance that you prescribe for and what is a trauma problem. Because if you are appearing schizophrenic or bipolar or manic, like, it's immediate that you are prescribed 
Because that's how you present according to like the DSM. You have the qualifications. But then there's some people who the medications don't work for. And I was like, why, why is that? How are you identifying these people? Like, how do you know if someone has a chemical imbalance versus a trauma problem? How do you know which one it is? And it was just so confusing to me. And I could see it very clearly that you truly cannot, no one can tell the difference when someone just comes in or you meet someone as to whether they have a chemical imbalance or a trauma problem. And so as I did my work with trauma survivors, trafficking survivors, if they were already on medication, it's like the next logical question is, does it work? And if it works, keep doing it because clearly there's a chemical imbalance and the medication is correcting the chemical imbalance. But if it's not working and there's a lot of people who it doesn't work for, why? Why are we just going to keep shifting medications? And I discovered that when you address the trauma problem, Many times, most of the time, when you really go through it, you just simply don't need the medication anymore because what, however you are presenting no longer exists. You can't heal schizophrenia. You can't heal bipolar. You can't heal manic. Like, you can't heal these things. But if the root of it is not a chemical imbalance and it's a trauma problem, you sure as fuck can heal it and those issues will go away. Mind blown. I just had more fun making friends with people who were clinicians and we would geek out for hours over this stuff, being like, what about this and what about this? It was so much fun for me to learn and go deeper and we were helping each other out. We were learning from each other and growing in our own mindsets about how to better help. Over the years, I had been developing these self-healing tools because I would try them with people. I would experiment and be like, hey, try this tool. Let me know if it works. Try this thing. Let me know if it works. And I was testing all these different theories that were working for me. And I discovered that like humanity is remarkably similar and healing is not hard. It's simply about finding what works for you and then rinsing and repeat. It's like shampooing. Like you don't change the way you shampoo just because like it's a new day and your hair is now filled with chlorine instead of salt water. You don't change everything. You do the same thing. You jump in the shower and you wash your hair. So why do we keep looking for new tools if we already have a handful of tools that work well? And so I developed this self-healing model that was working for the vast majority of people that I encountered. And it was absolutely fabulous. And over the years, I've just been adding to it more and more. Today, it's called the Successful Humaning Flowchart. And it's a whole flowchart of different modalities that help you become self-aware and then move from one area of your life to the next and how to overcome self-sabotage and triggers and all these different obstacles that we run into in our lives. 
But I felt like we had been lied to within society because there is this belief that one, we can't control our feelings. And two, there's some things that you just can't heal from. And both of those things were so incredibly wrong. They're simply wrong. They're not true. We can control our feelings. Our feelings are important. They're indicators. They're indicators that something is happening, something is going on, and we need to look at it more. But sometimes we just have feelings based on these low-lying, really mild triggers. And that just makes us funky. So sometimes our feelings can be little bitches, but sometimes they're really helpful. And it's understanding when and not letting them control our lives. Because really, I've already been through enough. Do I need to let one more memory control or dictate where I'm going? I think not. This is my life. I'm going to do it my way. I'm telling you, there is nothing like going behind the scenes of some of these larger evangelical churches to help you deconvert faster. So that is what we're going to go into on the next episode. I can't wait for you to join me. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your time with me because that is the one thing that is in limited supply and you have joined me. For that, I am deeply deeply grateful. I love you tons. I can't wait to see you soon. Have a great day.